uh, feels like I'm lecturing at the uh, dinner table. <laughs> but uh, here we go. Okay. So, I mean, I think as many of you know, I'm, I'm pretty passionate um, as a clinician, as a researcher. What people don't really know is in the 60s, people thought infectious disease was going to be a specialty that would no longer exist. And we're not talking about slouches who made these predictions. So if you look at these next slides, U.S. Surgeon General thought it was going to be a non-issue. And a uh, guy from England, Sir McFarlane Burnett. And, and it, it was pretty evidence-based, interestingly, in that they thought that there was going to be an endless stream of vaccines and there was going to be an endless stream of antibiotics. I think, and obviously, HIV really changed that. And I think now that we have a grasp on HIV, antibiotic-resistant bacteria is really the biggest threat from an infectious disease, at least North American point of view. So Tony Fauci is director of the NIAID, and it's taken him, I think, a while to understand the importance of antibiotic resistance. Um, now says that it's now clear that ever that the human species is in the midst of a war with the microbial world, a resil resilient foe that will never be completely defeated. And I think my particular area of research focusing mainly on resistant gram-negative bacteria, I think is the one as clinicians we have a real problem with because there's no new antibiotic that's going to be available in the next 10 years at least that's going to solve us from all the patients we're prescribing polymyxin and colistin to where we're really not comfortable with that. And I think the cases we see, unfortunately, too often clinically, both in our emergency rooms and in our shock trauma, are things as follows. 53-year-old male involved in a car accident, taken to shock trauma with multiple fractures, has a good successful course, but has a complicated tracheostomy and wound infections, goes to a uh, acute rehab facility like USH, and then um, generally is doing well, no longer requires his trach, wounds are improving, but then has um, a setback, which often happens, presents back to our hospital in acute respiratory distress, chest x-ray and blood cultures are ordered, and he has a low, left lower lobe consolidation. The patient seen in the ER and often is started on the appropriate guidelines, but I think doesn't um, necessarily encompass this complicated course that the patient had. Patient worsens over the first 24 hours on ceftriaxone and azithro, and then we get a call that the patient has a non-lactose fermenting gram-negative bacteria. Now, I think in a lot of institutions at this point, unfortunately, with the prevalence of resistant acinetobacter and re resistant enterobacteriaceae, that people will sometimes start colistin in these patients at this point. Um, and unfortunately, this patient ends up having acinetobacter um, and, and dies. A second case, which we see less often in Maryland, but um, is increasing and is prevalent in the surrounding states, particularly where it originated in the state of New York, is a um, 60-year-old male with pro multiple prior hospital admissions for COPD, multiply outpatient antibiotic courses, who comes in with klebnumobacteremia that is carbapenem resistant and susceptible to no antibiotics. And I think what, what these slides um, try to demonstrate is we have a real crisis now. It's not only a resistance theoretical bench research issue. These are frontline patients that we're using antibiotics that we haven't used for 20 or 30 years because we deem them to be unsafe. And I think as you'll see um, in the next set of slides, although our science is advancing in terms of what works, there's so many unanswered questions still that we don't really know still how to best treat these patients and how best to protect our other patients in our intensive care units from getting these resistant bacteria. So what I, what I thought I'd do um, in the next half hour is to outline um, which bacteria um, cause most, most healthcare-associated infections, how do patients get antibiotic-resistant bacteria, different conceptual models, and then talk about what I think are the most effective interventions at present and review some of the controversies in these interventions. 
So, so one of the areas we have made a lot of progress in is that our overall infection rates have decreased. So on this column, you have central line-associated bloodstream infections, ventilator-associated pneumonias, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and clostridium difficile infections. And what you'll see other than C. diff is the rates have dramatically gone down across the country. So that's the good news. And the bacteria that are associated with each of these type of infections is summarized in the next two slides. So here is bloodstream infections, urinary tract infections, pneumonias. And here are the pathogens most often responsible. And you know, not surprisingly, for urinary tract infections, it's E. coli and candida. Um, for bloodstream infections, it's coag-negative staph, enterococcus, candida, and staph aureus. As a clinician, I think we still think that we're most concerned about staph aureus and very concerned about MRSA. But what is worth noting is, is the rate of MRSA nationally, and we don't completely know why, is, is decreasing. And this is similar, interestingly, to what happened um, nationally relative to staph aureus previously about 40 years ago. VRE, which was like the evil god, um, devil, um, now people think is less of a problem. And now I think the focus has shifted much more to the resistant gram negatives we're seeing. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the specific bacteria, but we are very concerned about um, resistant Acinetobacter um, and resistant E. coli and Klebsiella. And C. diff rates are increasing as well. Someone coined a term, you know, to get, try to get um, more funding and more national attention. You always need sexy acronyms. And so Lou Rice um, coined the term escape pathogen to summarize basically, you know, extremely important resistant bacteria that cause transmission and resistance and infection. Um, and as you can see, they're the ones we talked about, Klebsiella, Acinetobacter, Pseudomonas, Staph aureus. As hospital epidemiologists, you often feel like you're stuck in this picture in the sense of just when you think like things are under control and you, know, you can move on to your research or get home to your family or whatever, look over your shoulder and there's the next crisis coming on. So this is actually a sandstorm um, in, in Australia. So when I volunteer at my kids' um, school, sometimes you get these weird looks. It'll be like 11 o'clock, and you're in a grade three class. And you see the kids are whispering, you know, and you're why are they looking at me that way? And, you know, one of the kids will say, like, I thought you said your dad was a doctor. What's he doing here at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday? And you're there just to play with the kids and, you know, entertain them and teach them. And then the teacher will sometimes say something like, uh, yeah, I thought you were a physician. What do you do it? And you say, oh, well, I do research, and I see patients, and so I have a bit more flexible schedule. You say, oh, what do you do research on? And you're like, oh, God, I, get, I just want to be here with the kids. I want to answer these questions, right? So you want to try to shut them up. So you say, oh, I, I, I try to get people to wash their hands more often and use less antibiotics. And, you know, and then one of the teachers said, I just said your dad was NIH funded, you know. Because to the outsider, it's a simple answer, and it's true. Um, and yet they think, you know, it should be so easy because they go to McDonald's and they know that people are fired for basically not following rules and regulations. And they don't understand, I think, why resistant bacteria should be such a problem if the solutions are, are seemingly so easy. Um, and so part of the way we got into this problem, obviously, is, is for years I think people thought there would be an endless supply of antibiotics. And so one of my worst experiences was trying to pay for my master's of public health in Boston by working at a walk-in clinic. And um, if you gave the patient an antibiotic for a viral upper respiratory tract illness, your visit was like five minutes. If you tried to convince them that an antibiotic wasn't needed, it took about 20 or 25 minutes. This is from the late 90s. And then your boss would say that you weren't turning patients around quickly enough. So you, you were in this kind of weird catch-22. Now, now, interestingly, um, some of you have had me as students. The, the, the epidemiologic issue, although resistance is rising, the actual acquisition rate, when you study it, um, is fairly rare. 
which makes determining the exact causal mechanisms very difficult, which is why as hospital epidemiologists, if someone says we have more acquisitions of resistant acinetobacter in our unit, what two interventions do you want to do? It's a question that you often cannot answer, as, as you'll see. So a lot of the cohort research we've done um, basically tries to get at these conceptual models, okay? So you have patient A that has a resistant bacteria that spreads the resistant bacteria to their room. The healthcare worker goes in to see the patient and or the environment, picks up the bacteria on their clothing and their hands, moves it to shared equipment, moves it to the ward environment. The healthcare worker then goes to the subsequent patient and spreads it to patient B. Now the amount of, so if you have a patient, let's say, that comes into your unit, like many of our units, and gets active surveillance cultures, and we know the patient's negative, and then when they leave the unit, we get active surveillance cultures, and we know they're positive. Um, how much of that acquisition is due to the healthcare worker versus equipment versus the antibiotic selective pressure is uncertain. At this point, the literature suggests that at least 50% of it is unfortunately nosocomially acquired, which makes the lawyers very happy, unfortunately, and makes our life, I think, unfortunately difficult. So some of the interventions that I'm going to talk about in the, in the last 20 minutes are you know, the idea of CHG bathing with the idea being that you decrease this amount of transmission. The idea of gloves and gowns and contact precautions protecting the healthcare worker from picking it up from the patient in the patient rooms. Hand hygiene on exit then preventing the transmission obviously to equipment and wards. And then issues of equipment cleaning, cleaning out of the outside environment and then potentially hand hygiene compliance and gloves and gowns on room entry to the subsequent patients. And in another way, when you do, let's say, a logistic regression analysis for risk factors for that patient acquiring, the problem that arises is you have a good conceptual model, but you have a ton, basically, of causal variables and confounding variables. So you have a whole bunch of individual level factors, including the severity of illness of the patient. So, you know, in, is, is Mike's patient particularly sick with two central lines, an art line, a Foley and ET tube versus the counterfactual patient in the exact same room that's exactly the same without those lines. You know, very high severity of illness versus not. Comorbid conditions. Is our, play, is our patients compared to Midtown have a higher amount of comorbid conditions? Then there's hospital level factors, hand hygiene, nurse to patient ratios, the percent of surrounding patients that have the resistant bacteria is a colonization pressure. We stole that idea from malaria research, which is, you know, perfectly logical and, and then, but not, you don't think about it until someone explains it to you. So what's the biggest way to prevent malaria above and beyond is to figure out what percent of mosquitoes have it. So, you know, you can have the same amount of bed net use and, you know, so on, so on, so on in, let's say, two completely identical countries. But if one, 80% of the mosquitoes have malaria and in the other 20%, your rate of acquisition is dramatically smaller. The same idea applies in our ICUs. So if you cloned our medical ICU and moved it to a community hospital in North Dakota, the patient has a much smaller risk of acquiring CRE or MRSA because the surrounding patient prevalence is much lower. So moving away from, you know, causality and epidemiology and moving on a little bit of, you know, some of the basic frameworks of how we would protect our patients, try to keep our patients healthy, try to maintain as much of their normal flora as possible. So a lot of interesting research in the microbiome and the idea of how much do certain antibiotics disturb intestinal and respiratory flora. Reduce the risk of infection by avoiding devices and reduce transmission. Most of my research and most of the group's research is to how to prevent transmission and or understand transmission events. So let's move on to um, contact precautions. And what I mean by contact precautions is how much do wearing gloves and gowns help us or hurt us um, to prevent the transmission? Now, now, what's interesting, as John Mark alluded to, um, the, the study that nearly killed us that we'll get to is a cluster randomized trial that was in JAMA. 
And uh, I'm well aware this could be my only JAMA paper of my career, so I savored the moment. But, but, but the flip side, ironically, is, is, is that some of our failed research or much simpler research that I think has had as large an impact on the day-to-day -day patients in our hospital. And so we had a resident, Graham Snyder, a long time ago came, very bright resident, and came, I want to do a one-month elective. And I'm always honest with them, and I say, you know, one month, what are your goals? There's not a lot we can get done. And, but Graham was particularly strong, and in short, Eli and I, the former hospital epidemiologist, were very frustrated by healthcare workers going into patient rooms and saying, I just touched the monitor, or I was just in with the team, or you know, it's not like I bathed and rotated the patient. I really need to wear gloves and gowns. And there were some studies, but not a lot, trying to quantify how protective the gloves and gowns were. So, so Graham launched um, some really basic research, but that I think was critically important is like the data element that we presented to nurses and doctors of, do you know how often you pick up these resistant bacteria? So in short, we went to patients' rooms that were on contact precautions for various antibiotic resistant bacteria, and we took all comers. So anytime someone went into the room, we cultured their hands before they went in, and then we cultured their gloves and gowns and they went out to try to basically causally measure how protective are the gloves and gowns if you were 100% compliant versus 0% compliant. And, and to be honest, I lost a lot of office bets in the sense of I thought the percentage was going to be about 5, you know, 0 to 5%. And what we found for most bacteria, and we, we've extended it now to Klebsiella and CREs, is, is about 15 to 20% of the time for most of the bacteria, you, you pick them up on your gloves and gowns, which is pretty amazing. And this is any patient contact. But I think it also helps explain why the bacteria are so easily spread. Because if you're a nurse going into a patient's room three, four times um, an hour, and you got two to three patients, or you're an intern manning six, seven patients, you could be 90% compliant, which would be pretty good. But if you're picking up that bacteria 20 to 40% of the time, you're easily spreading it in any given day with 90% compliance to a bunch of different areas. And this was some of the research that led us to the idea of maybe we, shouldn't be, maybe we should be using in certain settings universal glove and gown where you're wearing the gloves and gowns all the time. That coupled obviously with the hand hygiene literature of over 40 years where you know, they launched 9 million interventions, and you get your compliance from 40 to 70 to 75, and then it falls back down, and you never really ever get to, you know, 90, 95% compliance. And I think one of the areas that we haven't fully studied, but we're interested why acinetobacter rates were higher. We've started to do some research on, you know, is it the pili, you know, so is it a bacteria where I have the same load on the patient bed rail? of Acinetobacter and Staph aureus, and maybe I just pick more up, or is it more easily transferable? So, um, so I think, ironically, the most effective sign we've done to improve compliance is if I only have two minutes as hospital epidemiologist with an incoming resident crew into the unit, I put this sign up and say, every single time you go into the patient room, this is how often you pick up the bacteria. This is why I need you to be a role model and be 100% compliant. Okay. An area of research that Dan Morgan, um, who's an infectious disease physician in our group, uh, has done some really amazing work, was there was a JAMA paper in the early 2000s that showed that patients on contact precautions had more adverse events. For the time it was done, it was very well done. It was a cohort study with propensity scores, and they did the best job they could with certain epidemiologic limitations. But what, what some of us were always struck by was some of their findings made no sense at all. So it wasn't like the patients had a higher rate of pressure ulcers or falls, which would make sense if the nurses and the doctors are going in less often. But they had more electrolyte disorders was the biggest driver. So Dan was always struck by, um, let's try to do this these studies more scientifically to really assess what's happening on anxiety, depression, frequency of visits, and injuries. And I don't have a 
full amount of time, but if you're interested in the topic more, him and his PhD students have done a number of interesting studies that basically showed that the patients on contact precautions are generally sicker. And so they have more anxiety and depression when they step into your ICU bed and that their rate of anxiety and depression doesn't really change or dramatically differ from the patient who's not on um, contact precautions. So personally, I think that um, high compliance with contact precautions is pretty much essential to prevent the spread of resistant bacteria. Now, what we'll get to when we get to our cluster trial, um, the data that it does seem to conclusively show that healthcare workers go in less often, and maybe in the question period we can talk about, you know, what potential negative consequences that has. So let's move to active surveillance. And um, active surveillance is the idea that you do cultures to identify patients that are colonized and not yet infected with the resistant bacteria. Unfortunately, I think in my field, in contrast to let's take a better field like cardiology, okay? The cardiologists debate at Journal Club on and on, one randomized trial versus another. And a patient comes into the ER, and John Mark knows exactly, you know, why he has to give an aspirin, and, you know, which patient should go for bypass and which should go to the cath lab. In infection control, similar, unfortunately, to a lot of other specialties, our level of science is not there. And unfortunately, what's happened in active surveillance is people jumped on the bandwagon before it was ready, and all these states were legislating that you had to do it. And in my opinion now, too many people are jumping off the bandwagon because of a couple studies, and, and, and I'll highlight some of those. The idea behind active surveillance is that about if you have, let's say, in your unit, um, a thousand patients over a given year. If you only identify, the, use clinical cultures to identify the people with resistant bacteria, you'll miss about 90% of them. It's the tip of the iceberg theory. The culture only picks up um, a, a small percentage of the people who have that resistant bacteria in their intestinal tract or in their respiratory flora. And as we know by not only our research but multiple other groups, um, the patient who's colonized easily can still transmit the bacteria at the same frequency as a patient who's infected. So th the rationale behind active surveillance was that you'd identify patients who had the resistant bacteria, you'd put them on, co on contact precautions, and you'd prevent the spread. The obvious con is it's very costly to do active surveillance, and gloves and gowns are fairly costly as well. So why do I have this picture of this person? Because in the last year, she's gone from saint to devil. And so it represents the idea of active surveillance, even among our circles, is still very, very controversial at this point. Where to screen is actually fairly straightforward, except for resistant acinetobacter. So it's pretty clear that with MRSA, you get about 90 to 95% sensitivity with a nose screen. With ESBL and CREs, so for E. coli and CLEB, you basically um, get about 90-95% with a perianal. With acinetobacter, it's a little bit more complicated because it's, it's often found basically in both the intestinal flora and the respiratory flora, and so you need at least two sites. Now, as I indicated, for like MRSA, every VA hospital in the country requires MRSA active surveillance, not only for ICU patients, but every patient admitted. I'd say that pendulum swung a little too far. There are also states, basically, that mandate MRSA active surveillance. Our state had mandated MRSA active surveillance on ICU admission only. The, the official guidelines is the idea that active surveillance is needed for targeted populations. So if you look at the CDC document, they talked about ICU patients, burn patients, BMT patients, cancer unit. They weren't dogmatic and they didn't say all those patients had to be, but the idea was that the higher risk patient um, should potentially be, be the one who has active surveillance. Now, again, these next two slides try to get at um, some people think it definitely works, and some people think it doesn't work at all. The two most prominent studies in the area was this one was 
done by the New England Journal, uh, published in the New England Journal, by the, done by the Veterans Affairs, where they basically said that their initiative massively decreased the rate of MRSA infections, and most of the result was due to active surveillance. The critics said that it was also, in, they also had institution of improved hand hygiene, positive de de deviance and lean interventions, institutional culture change, and so on and so forth. Another study published in the New England Journal um, by Charlie Huskins and his group, which, you know, um, talk about taking one for the team. Charlie was the first guy in infection control to do a cluster trial. And before the New England Journal paper was even published, people were writing editorials about why you shouldn't believe the results. But he set the, he set, he did a nice study, but because he was fighting against the curve, um, he took one for the team that then allowed us and other groups to do subsequent cluster trials, which um, had fortunately a better um, response. But he, he basically did an active surveillance trial that seemed to show no effect at all on MRSA and VRE acquisition. So at Maryland, what, what do we do as hospital epidemiologists? We, we debate this um, probably on an every six-month basis, but at this point we still believe that the, there's value of active surveillance in the ICU setting. So we do MRC in all of our ICUs, VRE in the SICU and the MICU. Um, shock trauma, interestingly, is a very big proponent of um, active surveillance for MDRS, Nidobacter. Um, so it's done in the SICU, the MICU, and, the, and the, all the transfers. And we're initiating for carbapenem-resistant um, enterobacteriaceae, some active surveillance. The, the role of environmental um, cleaning um, is a hot issue. And, and what's basically been shown more and more, and this isn't a shock, but it's been shown more scientifically, um, environmental cleaning services do a pretty poor job. They clean the room about 20% of the time. So if you culture sites before and after a patient leaves, um, you only find about 20 to 30% of those sites cleaned. And because the patients basically spread the bacteria through their room, um, both the in, inanimate objects, you know, blood pressure cuffs, stethoscopes, IV pools, and then inanimate surfaces, th this has a potential role. So Carrie Tom's done some research where she finds basically on average in a patient that has acinetobacter, you know, 10% of the bed had it, 16% of the floors, so on, so on. It, it's throughout the room, unfortunately. Yes. So what's happening in the area of environmental cleaning is, is a, a guy invented something that I'm shocked hasn't, I, mean, this, I guess this is why I'm not a businessman, but what we use in, in our thing that I think is very cost effective is we spend about 15,000 bucks to use a fluorescent marker that allows us to process measure the cleaning staff and we feed that data back to them. So basically, we mark the 11 areas in the room. They can't see which are marked. They clean the room, and then you come in with a light. And anywhere that there's fluorescence, um, it demonstrates an improper cleaning. And you use that as feedback. There's a really neat cluster randomized trial being done right now um, in North Carolina where they're using these UV cleaning robots. Um, so doing both enhanced cleaning with the fluorescent marker, it's a factorial design and enhanced cleaning plus the UV machines. And so we're hopefully going to get more data. Um, the new technology, which also some places are using what's called um, hydrogen peroxide, um, it, it's expensive. And at least at our institution at this point, we've deemed it um, not worth um, the money at this point. But I think this may change. If you're interested in biotechnology, it's actually a pretty neat area. Um, so they're trying to figure out basically how to turn the rooms over as fast as possible, obviously, with the most efficacious method of cleaning the environment. Um, antibiotic stewardship is an area that was unfortunately, I think, neglected for too long at the University of Maryland, but has, has um, a bit of a renaissance. And, and I want to just um, give that team a little bit of um, um, so the team here is led by Dr. Mike Kleinberg. He's been an infectious disease physician here for over 20 years. And we're very lucky to have an outstanding um, 
infectious disease trained pharmacist by the name of Emily Heil. And, and basically the rationale is give the right antibiotics to treat our patients and treat them effectively up front and not use unnecessary antibiotics. And if we don't use unnecessary antibiotics, we hopefully decrease our C. diff rates and our adverse drug rates. And so the goal is to obviously optimize clinical outcomes um, with, without affecting the quality of patient care and decreased costs. And so some of their core strategies that they're trying to work on involve um, de-escalation therapy. So patient comes in to Mike's unit superseptic. We're totally in favor of broad-spectrum antibiotics, but we want 24 to 48 hours later when a patient's doing better to narrow the coverage, treat the pathogen, peel back, and things like that. So that's a de-escalation therapy. Kerry Tom has a CDC grant um, now to study um, in multiple institutions this idea of an antibiotic timeout. So stealing the timeout idea from the operating room and trying to see whether you can develop tools to better optimize antibiotics kind of on the back end. Okay, so the, the slides I'm most proud of, um, interestingly, from a field point of view, is the next series of slides. So as I indicated, in infection control, the level of science, to be frank, was down here, which as an epidemiologist was really very frustrating. And fortunately, our level of science in the last 10, 15 years is really elevated with much better done um, case control studies, much better done before and after intervention, quasi-experimental studies, and now finally funding agencies, funding randomized trials to hopefully get some definitive answers. And so I wanted to um, give you a little bit of insight of you know, what's happened with chlorhexidine bathing and why we use universal glove and gown and what these trials seem to show. And so the, the, the first cluster trial on chlorhexidine bathing was um, done by Mike Klimo and published in the New England Journal. It's a crossover cluster trial with nine ICUs and six hospitals. Um, and, and what they found was um, the chlorhexidine bathing the, the led to 23% fewer acquisitions. Now, what's lost when you don't look at the details is they found a large effect on VRE and a much smaller effect on MRSA. And then the, the other thing that they found was a reduced overall bloodstream infection rate but I think you have to look very carefully and that most of the effect was for coag negative staph and yeast. Now, I think those pathogens are still important because those aren't pathogens that we don't treat when it's in the bloodstream. So I think that chlorhexidine bathing decreases a lot, would lead to a large decrease in the amount of excess antibiotic use we may use. But what was lost on a lot of people was it did not show an across-the-board effect on you know, Pseudomonas, Staph aureus. The second um, trial, which had three arms done by Susan Wong and Rich Platt, which was published in the New England Journal, which um, is a really interesting um, economies of scale. So I think they only got $1.5 million from AHRQ, but they embedded it in the HCA, a really large network of hospitals, and used the infra informatics infrastructure across to really leverage their study, which was neat. They had three arms, one which was they did active surveillance screening for MRSA. If the person was positive, they got placed on contact precautions. The second was they did active surveillance for MRSA. If the patient was positive, they decolonized them with mupirocin and chlorhexidine bathing. And the third arm was, well, forget about screening. We'll just give everyone in the unit chlorhexidine bathing and MRSA. And their outcome was MRSA clinical culture, so they did not do active surveillance. And, and what they found was is a reduced rate of clinical cultures for MRSA and a decreased rate, but they didn't break that down, interestingly. So we don't know how many of those were wounds, sputums, so on and so forth. And they found a decrease in bacteremias, but I think, interestingly, similar to the previous study I showed, mainly skin commensals. So they didn't show an effect on um, staph wars. And then I just wanted to highlight that there was a pediatric trial as well that showed very similar results. So what's happened interestingly is, is people have taken these three studies and I'd hazard a guess that about 80% of the ICUs in the country are using chlorhexidine bathing now. And I'd say only about 5% are using mupirocin. 
So it's kind of interesting which interventions with very similar affected sizes get adopted and what reasons. And it, it, we may get into it in questions, but um, it's been very interesting to see what interventions are adopted. And uh, what's interesting is, is all those studies were done with the sage cloth, okay, which is very expensive. It's chlorhexidine impregnated cloth. And I'd say about 60% of the ICUs, including ours, um, that adopted chlorhexidine bathing went to mixing it themselves. And there may be some biological reasons why that may not be ideal. Our study that nearly killed Dan and I it was a study of um, universal gloving and gowning. So what we tried, wanted to see is, is we wanted to get a definitive answer of whether gloving and gowning helped patients, harmed patients, or was neutral. And so what we did was is we um, had a primary outcome, which was composite MRC or VRE acquisition. We had active surveillance cultures coming from 20 ICUs. and um, some, one was our SICU, but um, 19 were from units across the country. We nearly killed our research lab. They had 1,000 specimens a day coming in. Uh, we had techs we had to hire, so we're running basically seven days a week, um, so on and so forth. The key secondary outcomes were MRC and VRE acquisition, hand hygiene compliance, number of healthcare worker visits, and adverse events. And like I said, you know, to be honest, I didn't really care whether the result was positive or negative. I just wanted people to say that the study was well done. And we were really, really, that was a message we relayed to um, the ICUs when we, when we went. And um, all these areas were extremely controversial, meaning some people thought the more gloves and gowns you wear, the better your hand hygiene compliance is going to be. Some people thought that it was going to be worse. S studies were kind of in, on, on both ends. Um, a lot of studies had showed that when you force healthcare workers to wear gloves and gowns, healthcare workers go on less often, but it hadn't been studied in a randomized fashion. And really, other than that JAMA paper, people hadn't studied adverse events from a sound scientific um, way. So what we did is, is we had a match pair cluster design, so we had a three-month baseline period. We measured the acquisition rate and then we matched pairs. So the rate that had the highest MRC and VRE acquisition, one of them went to gloves and gowns and one didn't, and so on and so forth. So we had 20 ICUs enrolled, um, 10 ICUs allocated to intervention, 10 ICUs to control. We had um, over 9,900 admissions in each arm, and we had over 70,000 swabs in the um, intervention period. And the baseline period had over 8,000 swabs. Uh, 2,000 swabs, 20,000 swabs, I'm sorry. What we found in terms of the outcomes was um, that hand hygiene um, was improved on um, exit, which I think, at least for me personally, that made sense, and most of the literature was consistent with that. So if you're going to the effort of taking your gloves and gowns off, the idea was that you're then kind of tuned or primed. It's almost a cue to wash your hands. and so. Um, blue is the intervention, red is the control, and we found a 16% difference. We also found consistent with the literature that healthcare workers go into the patient's rooms on average one visit less per hour. Now, as to whether they're bundling, you know, this is not great qualitative data, but we got a lot of, when we went around to sites, nurses would say, yeah, well, I used to go in twice, but now I know because I got to put my gloves and gowns on, I'm going to do those same two tasks in one visit. So we don't know whether that was the case or whether they're just like, it's a pain in the ass to go in, and I'm going to provide worse care and go in less often. We're not sure. The major effect we found, which was kind of um, gratifying, um, but yet still left us confused, is we found a massive effect on MRSA. So we cut MRSA acquisition down by 40%, but we found absolutely no effect on VRE at all. And so what's interesting is, is when people read the studies, the camp that don't believe in contact precautions said, see, it doesn't work at all. And the part that do believe in contact precautions said, see, it works. And interestingly, we had that same response in our 10 ICUs that got randomized to the intervention arm. Three were absolutely convinced it was working and continued it, didn't care what the results show. 
Three wanted to know what the results showed before they decided, and three counted down the days till they could remove the gloves and gown precautions. Um, so it was interesting. The, the adverse events, which I think if we had been, if we had wanted more celebrity, um, we would have forecast this more or broadcast it more. But as scientists, we weren't comfortable with the trend. But we saw a trend towards decreased adverse events. So we felt pretty convinced that there were not more adverse events, but we didn't want to say that universal gloving and gowning led to less adverse events. And we're analyzing this data more for a subpaper, trying to break down exactly what was going on. And I can explain maybe in the questions, but the adverse events were a blinded chart review. So at each site, random charts were reviewed using a standardized IHI trigger tool. So you review the chart in a standardized way. And then Dan and I both reviewed the charts independently blinded. And then we, we reviewed it. Boy, that was a pain in the ass. Felt like I was a first year fellow again, you know, doing, doing all the grunt work. But we thought it was such a critical outcome, we didn't want to farm it out to pretty much anyone else. The, this slide gets at um, the, the idea of um, hand hygiene is still a cornerstone. If we can find a way to get hand hygiene compliance up to 95%, a lot of the interventions I just talked about may not, may not be needed. So some of our failed projects, but I think will work in 10 years, is RFID technology, you know, linked to our badges where you can give instantaneous feedback of hand hygiene compliance, but the technology is still not there. Okay, and in the uh, last couple minutes, who knows who this is? Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky, okay. So I'm originally Canadian. The thing I like about Gretzky and in fact, I was mentioning this to um, my 14-year-old son, son's soccer team yesterday. The thing I liked about Gretzky was he was the greatest player, but he was also extremely humble. You know, Gretzky never, ever took the credit and stuff. So the next slide defies my Gretzkyism in the following ways. So, um, and, and this group knows, but unfortunately, um, a lot of people in the hospital don't. They think we're just like run-of-the-mill slouch hospital epidemiologists. We don't know anything about anything. But, but, but actually, the, the group that is here, which is um, Dr. Tom, Morgan, Rogman, Lika, you know, has over 170 publications in this area. A bunch of us have prominent positions in our society. I, unfortunately, am going to be president next year, so I have to find 15 to 20 hours of time in my already busy schedule to hopefully um, do a good job. Um, our head infection preventionist, Michael Ann Pries, is president of APIC, which is an infection control network. So the, the, the group here, although we don't necessarily have definitive answers for everything, it, does, it is a group that really knows what they're, what they're talking about. And I wish that occasionally people would listen to us a little bit more, um, but, but that goes. Okay, so to, to summarize, I think what I've talked about in the, in the last um, 40 minutes is um, hand hygiene is still kind of the cornerstone. We didn't spend much time on it, but all the efforts of you know, getting your hand hygiene up from 75 to 80 to 85 percent, I think is, is, is definitely critical. We have a new boss in terms of environmental disinfection, and we're hoping he's really going to um, um, get do a better job cleaning the environment of our patient rooms. I do think that whether you believe in universal glove and gown or not, the literature is pretty clear that the patients who are on contact precautions, we need to do a much better job um, wearing gloves and gowns. In terms of what I think about universal glove and gown, what, what I told the media was, I don't think all of our ICUs in the country should have universal glove and gown. I don't think none of our ICUs in the country should have universal glove and gown. I think that ICUs that have a high MRSA rate and a high resistant bacteria rate with things like gram negatives should. So presently, our um, MICU is on universal glove and gown. Our SICU was for a time period and are going to rediscuss it. And I personally think that units like um, our unit with an LVAD where a patient gets one MRSA in their LVAD and, you know, has extremely high morbidity and mortality, I think it should be considered. To be honest, we're waiting for more fallout, more editorials on our paper, more discussion at national meetings, and then we're going to re-decide, I think, which of our nine ICUs 
um, should, should or should not be on universal glove and gown. And we have incorporated chlorhexidine bathing in all of our units. And then I think as intensivists, you, you guys do a really good job, but it's amazing how much things like getting the catheters out, following weaning protocols are really, really critical, I think, to preventing healthcare-associated infections. This joke used to be funny. You know, ID docs never were involved in lawsuits, and unfortunately, um, we are now. Um, so, you know, if what we do and do, don't know. Thanks very much for inviting me. I'd be happy to field questions. Well, I think the reason we focus on the units is because that's the area where we, one, have the most data. Two, we think that the patients who acquire the resistant bacteria are more at risk for infection, and we know that. So the literature that's pretty clear is, is a patient who's colonized with a resistant bacteria on their ICU admission, as an example, in the first couple of days, they get that in a clinical culture 20 to 30 percent of the time. Versus, I think, in the ER, setting and a non-setting, um, not that we want to spread resistant bacteria, but the person who comes into your ER and then goes back on the, sh on the street um, is less likely to become infected even if they transiently pick up a bacteria. I, I think the solutions to the ER, which again, some of our failed studies, but hopefully will work at some point is, you know, uh, things like uh, scrubs that the bacteria don't adhere to would help, things like an environment we did a study um, with an environmental sealant, um, you know, that was supposed to prevent bacterial adherence. I think ways to improve hand hygiene compliance. So there's, there's companies that, so I, I don't advocate for this, but it's an interesting idea. You know, the food safety, food tray people, they wear the same gloves from room to room to room to room. So there's people that are making antibiotic-coated gloves with the idea that in like a quick ER setting, right, if you just kept the same gloves on for 40 minutes. Um, you know, I mean, some, I think the solution to the ER is more technology. But it's also like our, our friend who's, you know, double-boarded in ER and ID, I think that he will do more research and hopefully come with more solutions. There's kind of engineering things I think we can do. So, like, we, we tried to use our FID technology to understand patient movement, healthcare worker movement. I think there's ways to probably redesign ICUs and ERs to, to hopefully prevent more spread. But yeah, it's an area we don't really know a lot about. And, and obviously, I think what, one thing I didn't relay that I think is important, I don't want people wearing gloves and gowns if they're not going to go into patients' rooms and they're going to suffer, you know, mortality events, you know. If we cut down MRSA acquisition by 20%, but we increase mortality by 5%, I mean, that's pointless. But, um, and I, I think, you know, there's trade-offs that you have to be aware of. Mike? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest bugaboos in infection control, but also if I think you're Jonathan Gottlieb interested in quality is the implementation science of the hospital, which involves both kind of um, understanding of implementation science, but also behavioral, which is what you're getting at. People don't know. I mean, the leading researchers in hand hygiene have tried for 40 years different behavioral theories and stuff. And I mean, ironically, the biggest solution was the technology of switching from soap and water, which required 30 to 45 seconds, to alcohol, which required 10. I mean, th there's theories that are finally working. I mean, starting to be stuck. Our infection control group, interestingly, our IP suggested, I'm only about halfway through the book, but. It's called drive, it's how you change habits. Um, and, and I think there are more people, but, but you guys, um, in tr I, I don't know the present group, I apologize, but the, the, the older trauma group was with the only group in the whole hospital that had behavioral engineers. Um, you know, I collaborated a little bit with Yan Zhao, and then what was the other guy who left as well? Um, yeah, so you, there, there were three or four people for a while in trauma who were specifically doing a lot of videotaping and trying to figure out behavioral stuff out totally outside infection control. So, right, right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, so people debate this at our national meetings all the time, which is like, what percent of antibiotic use in the food supply accounts for resistance? What percent in the hospital? What percent in the community? P people don't know. I mean, I think the pendulum's finally starting to swing be better in terms of more prudent use. I mean, I think they're in, I tend to be a moderate. And so, you know, I'm an ID doc first and foremost. So I'd never recommend when a patient's septic, oh, we should be instituting stewardship at that point, you know. The flip side is, is I, I think that, you know, durations of therapy are voodoo a lot. And, you know, if we have a randomized trial to suggest that seven days is fine for ventilator-associated pneumonia versus 14 days, then why are we treating, you know, run-of-the-mill cellulitis 10, 12 days? I mean, that's crazy. So I think that I'm all in favor from an antibiotic stewardship point of view of, shortening durations and reassessing, you know, if a culture grows susceptible staff, why still have them on Zosin? You know, I mean, it just make to me that makes no sense. Well, I think the problem is, is for each bacteria it's different. So, you know, for staph in particular, it's a completely different, um, different host and stuff. Healthcare workers' permanent colonization with things like MRSA is extremely low. And I think healthcare workers for most resistant bacteria, it's just a transient colonization. For patients who truly have it in their intestinal flora, they're actually colonized um, very long time. So if not infinitely, once they get re-exposed to antibiotics. Now hopefully, the, the way we're kind of on the cusp with C. diff of fecal transplant seemingly helping these severe cases, our hope is um, that maybe in 10 or 15 years we will understand the microbiome better of, you know, why let's say two adjoining patients probably get the same burden of CRE in their room or on their skin, but only one of them gets colonized and one doesn't. Um, I mean, it's an area, I don't know if I'm going to get funded to this, but, but we're trying to, we have like 90,000 frozen perirectal swabs in the ICU, and we're trying to analyze the microbiome of, of patients and who gets it and who doesn't and so on and so forth.